92.3 FM W222CD Louisville and 106.9 WVEZ FM HD2 St. Matthews Louisville, a pure radio station. Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my latest project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. It's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming at novices and strugglers, those who haven't read or have tried to read, but uh, haven't been able to do much with the Bible. More information is available about The Word Diet, the book, at thoroughlyequipped.org. With the radio show, we're starting with the book of Revelation, which is a challenging book, but a great book. It's understandable and applicable, especially if you get a little bit of help from someone like me. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. Please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. And that's especially the case today. We're getting ready to move into Revelation 6, and I have a number of introductory things to say there. But we're leaving Revelation 1 through 5, which is pretty easy reading, uh, especially easy for the book of Revelation and well within your reach. So if you have not yet read Revelation 1 through 5, please do that this week uh, as we move forward in the book. We've just just wrapped up two weeks on chapters 4 and 5, which I think is the fulcrum of Revelation. It connects God's work through the churches, Revelation 1 through 3, with God's work in creation and redemption, Revelation 4 and 5, and now we head into God working out his justice and final judgment on earth in Revelation 6 through 20. And in all of this, we're interested in the character of God and what's our response to God's work in life and history and in creation. And Revelation is especially interested in this, uh, these responses and our understanding of God in times of difficulty. Hendrickson says this, All things ultimately must glorify God. His will is carried out in the universe. The throne rules, the Lamb reigns. As a result, believers need not fear in times of tribulation, persecution, and anguish. And that's what we saw. Chapter 4 was God ruling on his throne. Chapter 5 was the Lamb, Jesus, reigning overall. And so now we move in to chapter 6 and following. Lord, be with us as we uh, talk about the scriptures today, as we try to understand this this beautiful, uh, amazing book of Revelation. Uh, We pray that we would understand you better and that we would obey you more fully, love others, and love you better in the days to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network and this show. Okay, we'll take a break before we get rolling. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Dependable, trustworthy, pure radio at 92.3 FM and 106.9 FM HD2. Welcome back to The Word Diet. This week we're introducing Revelation 6 through 22. These are things we talked about in our very first week together briefly in passing, but now we need to develop them fully. Uh, All the big things that get in the way or uh, can affect the way we interpret Revelation, we need to discuss those. Uh, What is apocalyptic as a literature uh, style? What's the point of prophecy? Uh, And then there are multiple views on how to see Revelation, four big views in particular, 
and we need to talk about those before we can get going as well. The first thing to say is that we're coming out of Revelation 1 through 5, which is I've tried to make clear and I hope has made it's been made obvious. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's applicable. It's easy to read. And so Revelation gets skipped a lot, and that's really unfortunate. I think that's a sin of omission to skip Revelation 1 through 5 and to not have that be a significant part of what gets taught in the church. In Revelation 6 through 20, uh, there are some sins of omission here as well, but this is really heavy lifting. So I wouldn't expect to hear much of this from the pulpit, but I would expect to hear it taught a lot. When it is taught or preached, a lot of times there are sins of commission, I would say, that it's not done well. So we want to cover it and avoid the sins of omission, but we also want to not stumble into sins of commission when we're handling the Word of God. I like a, a number of quotes here. Robert Klaus says, Revelation is a strange book in that a person makes everything of it or else makes nothing of it right? That's the, what we're talking about. It either gets ignored or it's all that one thinks about when one looks at the Bible. Uh, Lowry comments on this. He says, one approach consigned Revelation to the past while the other used, used it to tell us the future. The book either meant virtually nothing to me or everything to me. And we're going to avoid that mistake as well. The book of Revelation uh, is talking about the past. It is talking about the future. And there are varying views about the extent to each. And we'll cover those views, which, which will make it more applicable to the past and more applicable to the future than maybe you're used to doing. But we, we don't want to make the mistake of thinking it's only about the past or only about the future. Thomas Long says this about preachers. The apocalyptic literature of the Bible is characterized by a tendency to divide things into two opposing forces. It tends to, to divide preachers as well between those who preach almost nothing else and those who wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. Those who preach nothing else are an embarrassment to the Christian faith. These hawkers of last day's superstition keep in perpetual motion a cottage industry of fear, ignorance, and Armageddon anxiety. But if the wind of apocalyptic blows violently from some pulpits, there are many others where hardly a breath is felt. In the more polite and educated churches, apocalyptic literature is mostly silenced. The situation is therefore unfortunate all the way around. The challenge is to recover the authentic place in faithful discourse of the apocalyptic word. And that's right where we want to be. We don't want to ignore Revelation, but we don't want to obsess on it. And we want to know how to read it well and apply it well and use it for what God intends it to be used. And it's not just preachers and teachers, right? It's the commentators. Uh, I love what G.K. Chesterton said about John. He said, he saw many strange monsters in his vision, but he saw no creatures so wild as one of his own commentators. So when you pick up a commentator, same sort of thing, especially if it's not a balanced view, uh, you tend to get some, some pretty crazy stuff out of it. Uh, again, Lowry here talks about how Revelation is often portrayed as a combination of demented copy of National Geographic magazine filled with grotesque creatures. It's a weather channel gone amok. It's a 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle and a graduate-level math book. Or as Barclay puts it, Revelation is notoriously difficult to understand. The result is that it has sometimes been abandoned as quite unintelligible, and it has sometimes become the playground of religious eccentrics. And so here are, are some options we're not going to go with. Revelation should not be ignored, and it should not be misused. It's difficult, but it's still important. 
And so what can we do? How can we set the table that we're in better shape to understand Revelation, particularly starting in chapter 6? Well, the first person, first problem for those who try to do a good job with this is this idea of literature type, that John is using prophecy and especially apocalyptic, which we're not that familiar with, as literary types. And he's using a lot of metaphor, simile, and hyperbole. Simile is an explicit comparison and uses the word like uh, to make that comparison. Metaphor is more implicit, more subtle, but again, a comparison. And then hyperbole is the use of exaggeration to make uh, a point. When Long's quote said a 10-foot pole, right, we know what that means. Uh, it's not literal. Uh, it's a bit hyper, hyperbolic, uh, but it's using figurative language to convey uh, something more colorfully than we would do using more literal language. Now, this is not just uh, an apocalyptic thing. We find figurative references throughout Scripture. Psalm 98.8 says, Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. And I think we're all pretty clear that we don't read the Bible literally there. Rivers aren't clapping hands. Mountains aren't singing together. It's a picture, right? It's a, a comparison um, used to help us understand in more poetic language uh, that creation is on uh, God's side and is cheering uh, as God's kingdom moves forward. Or think about the ministry of Jesus, Matthew 26, 61, John 2, and other places where Christ talked about the temple as his body. And it was confusing for his current listeners, right, because they were thinking of the temple as the temple, the building, but he was making references to the temple as his body. Or John six fifty three, which talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Again, that's not meant to be taken uh, literally. So then and now, right, this figurative language is uh, trouble for people. But the use of figurative language and other tools uh, are really ramped up with apocalyptic. And so if we're not aware of what apocalyptic is and how it functions, how to read it, we're going to get ourselves in some trouble. Apocalyptic is and was an important literary type, but mostly for the two centuries before and after Christ. And this comes in the face of Greek and Roman persecution. Uh, this is described in the Apocrypha and in historical accounts. Um, we, we see um, the use of apocalyptic at times in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, passages like Isaiah 34 verses 2 through 7 or Matthew 24, when there's references to the day of the Lord, uh, that's uh, references that are uh, familiar uh, with the, the genre of apocalyptic. Steve Gregg says a failure to take this into full account has led to some of the most outlandish teachings on this book by some whose rule of interpretation is literal and less absurd. Though this is a good rule when dealing with literature written in a literal genre, it is the exact opposite in the case of apocalyptic literature, where symbolism is the rule and literalism the exception. So when you're reading prose and narrative, then literal and less absurd is the right way to go. But when you're reading apocalyptic, something different is required. Literal is not the norm. Literal is not the starting point. Uh, something else is going on here. Lowry says it's not a matter of interpreting Revelation literally or figuratively. Instead, it's a matter of interpreting Revelation or any other book of the Bible, for that matter, naturally in light of the genre or genres of the book. 
Nelson Craybill, very helpful here. He says, instead of using logical argument and deductive reasoning like Paul, John uses pictures and narrative to convey his inspired message. And then he advises this, quote, think symbol, think metaphor, think poetry. Don't get trapped with wooden literalism unless you really expect to get to heaven and find that Jesus is a sheep. That's how he's described in chapter 5, verse 6, right? Crable says that our failure to read Revelation in this context is like reading the phone book like a novel. And I think if you think of a newspaper, we get the same sort of thing. When you open a newspaper, right, there's news, there's editorial, there's a TV guide, there are cartoons, and we just know to read those things differently. We don't read them all the same. Even in the scriptures, we know this. Psalms is not Proverbs. Proverbs is not parables. How do we handle the prophets? The Israelites often interpreted them too literally. We have to be careful to read in line with the genre that's presented to us in the scriptures. One of the nice things about this is that Revelation has greater appeal for more creative people. But, especially for us less creative people, it leads to much more uh, debate and trouble, right? Part of the of what we should enjoy about Revelation is that there can be a variety of interpretations that lead to greater excitement over the material properly, right? Here's what Eugene Peterson says about this. The form in which language comes to us is as important as its content. If we mistake its form, we will almost certainly respond wrongly to its content. If we mistake a recipe for vegetable stew for a set of clues for finding buried treasure, no matter how carefully we read it, we will end up as poor as ever and hungry besides. If we misread a speed limit sign as a randomly posted piece of information, rather than as a stern imperative, we might find ourselves pulled over on the side of the road with a police officer giving us a brief but expensive course in hermeneutics. Ordinarily, we learn these discriminations early and well and give form and content equal weight in determining meaning. But when it comes to scripture, we don't do nearly as well. Listening requires listening to the way it is said, form, as well as to what is said, content. Two sobering thoughts to wrap up this part of our discussion. Who over-literalized the scriptures in the time of Jesus? Who was quite sure of themselves and how to interpret the word of God? And who was most strongly rebuked by Jesus? Well, the Pharisees. So we don't want to follow their example. And again, this that doesn't solve our problem, but it is a warning to us, right, that we need to be careful not to over-literalize uh, the scriptures. I think the other irony here is that it, the more that you study Revelation without the proper lens, you may actually be getting yourself in more trouble. So I certainly hope this study uh, is helpful in that regard, right? To get us in a better position, to have a better lens. And if you come out of this study fuzzier about the details, that may be actually a great improvement. So uh, let's take a break at this point. Uh, please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry within its peace of God's kingdom. Please spread the word about Pure Radio and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Responsible, credible, Pure Radio, 92.3 FM and 106.9 FM HD2. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're doing an introduction to Revelation 6 and following, and we're talking about literature type in the first segment. Uh, the second segment, we want to spend our time talking about apocalyptic uh, and in greater detail. So 
To remind you of something I said in that very first week, it's derived from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means to reveal, uncover, and unveil. And of course, that's ironic, right? Because we don't really consider Revelation to be particularly uncovered or unveiled. We find it really difficult to read. And a lot of that is from the fact of it being apocalyptic in the first place, a literature style that we're not all that familiar with. We, would, we can think of uh, idioms that we use all the time. Think about it's raining cats and dogs. Uh, and how confusing that is to people that don't understand an idiom. I had uh, friends in, from Germany uh, back in college, and they, they spoke impeccable English, but they really struggled with the idioms. And it's not until you hang around with someone like that that you realize how common our use of idioms are. Uh, we use these things like rain falling off a, off a duck's back. There you go. Uh, but we just we just use these all the time, these phrases, and they're really hard to understand. And so we're in a similar position with Revelation that it's speaking a language that we don't quite get. And if we're not uh, humble, uh, aware of this, doing our best to understand uh, the intended language, then we're going to get ourselves in all kinds of trouble. Now, apocalyptic has a big use of colors and numbers, uh, more than any other book except the book of Numbers. Again, this is something we do some of, uh, of our own as well. We talk about something being 24-7 or 24-7-365, and we know what those numbers mean immediately. Uh, think about animals representing people, and historical events are pictured as natural phenomena. That's something that's very common and apocalyptic. And often heavenly bodies are used to describe political powers and events. Nelson Craybill, again, he, he suggests viewing Revelation as a kind of sanctified political cartoon, right? We think of the GOP as an elephant, the Dem Democrats are a donkey, the U.S. is an eagle, the, Ru the Russians are a bear. He says this, we are sophisticated enough to look for the underlying meaning and not take political cartoons literally, but what happens when someone who has never seen a political cartoon tries to interpret one? And that's kind of the spot we're in, right? We're not familiar with apocalyptic and we're trying to read it. If you're not familiar with a political cartoon, you're trying to interpret it uh, through a lens that you have available to you, uh, it's likely to result in error and or comedy. Here's a great example from John Ortberg. He used the 1999 Chicago Bulls and imagines if we read uh, an account of them a thousand years from now. If you're not a sports fan, this won't do much for you. But if you're a sports fan, this will be a great example, I think. Here's what Orberg writes. The bull, which once ruled the earth for 72 months, has suffered a mighty fall. For at the end of 72 months, the great right horn of the bull, whose number was 23, departed, and so did the great left horn of the bull. Then the third horn of the bull, which was pierced in many places and dressed like a woman, likewise departed. Then all the beasts of the earth, the hornets and the timber wolves came in and devoured the flesh of the bull, and the glory of the mighty bull was laid low. Again, if you're a sports fan, that's funny, uh, but it's also instructive, right? If we read language like that, we would know exactly what they were talking about, but we would also recognize that we were reading it through a different genre, right? That's not how you typically write about sports, but you could imagine someone writing in that style to communicate some set of truths. Now, the purpose of apocalyptic is always to write about the sins of the present time, the blessings of the time to come, and the terrors of the time between as God enters the picture. 
with cataclysmic events necessary to make that transition. And that's exactly what we have here in Revelation, right? The sins of the present time, the blessings of the time to come, and the terrors of the time in between as God intervenes in creation. As you might imagine, as we talked about before, this is going to be a popular literature style in a context of persecution and suffering and depicting the conflict between good and evil. We're trying to lay out radical differences between this present age and the age to come when the persecuted would be delivered powerfully, often by God. Again, that's the language of uh, the day of the Lord and God's intervention to make things right. Apocalyptic is also useful for other reasons. Remember that uh, the Christians are being persecuted, and so using veiled language allowed John to write more freely about contemporary enemies. So you don't want to poke your adversaries, right? So you can write about them in semi-code so they don't understand very well, and your readers do. It's also inherently difficult to describe some of this in any terms, right? If we're talking about Revelation 4 and 5, how do you write about worship in heaven uh, with literal language? It's, it's just beyond what you can do. And so I think that gets to our last point here, which is that it underlines that John did not and could not, and thus we don't need to understand the details. It's not about the details. We should focus on the forest rather than the trees, and we should give room for other people's interpretations of these things. Uh, there's lots of uh, people, good people on many sides of various fences here, and I want to do my best to join them as I present this. But it starts with an, an interpretive approach, right, that's more open and more focused on ap apocalyptic as a literature style, rather than trying to force an apocalyptic literature style through the wrong lens. One last advantage of apocalyptic is that it's just so, its complexity allows for greater beauty. I've compared Revelation often to a diamond. It has this diamond-like quality where you can turn it and look and see something different. As Mr. Tumnus puts it at the end of C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, it's like an onion, except that as you go in and in, each circle is larger than the last. The Bible becomes more amazing. Revelation becomes more amazing when we treat Revelation as apocalyptic uh, in all its beauty and uh, color and, and drama and everything else. As Ephraim the Syrian noted, if there existed only a single sense for the words of Scripture, the first commentator who came along would discover it, and other hearers would experience neither the labor of searching nor the joy of finding. And that's not the case of Revelation. Man, there is always something to see here. And so Revelation should be not so much deciphered as experienced. William Barclay quotes Philip Carrington and says this, In the case of Revelation, we are dealing with an artist greater than Stevenson or Coleridge or Bach. St. John has a better sense of the right word than Stevenson. He has a greater command of an earthly, supernatural loveliness than Coleridge. He has a richer sense of melody and rhythm and composition than Bach. It is the only masterpiece of pure art in the New Testament. So don't diminish the art of it, the beauty of it, by getting down in the nitty-gritty and getting lost in the details, right? It's, it's fine to look for the trees. It's fine to find some trees, but don't miss the forest. Don't miss the beauty and the elegance and what God has 
in store for us in, in a bigger picture, right? That he's in control. He's going to make things right. And we worship a God on the throne and the Lamb who reigns. Now, all that's said about apocalyptic, another part that makes it challenging is that Revelation is also prophecy. It's not simply apocalyptic. It's also prophecy. This is claimed uh, from the very beginning with Revelation 1.1. It's implicit in that. It's made more explicit three times in Revelation 22, verses 7, 10, and 18, describes it as words of prophecy. And arguably the key verse in the entire scripture uh, in Revelation is Revelation 19.10 that talks about the testimony of Jesus. So it's clearly prophecy as well, and that does make it a bit more challenging. So what is prophecy is our next question. Bowman notes that Revelation is far closer to the prophetic message and to the writings of the Hebrew prophets in both spirit and content than any other of the apocalypses known to us. John quotes Old Testament prophets about 150 times here, so we know it's prophecy. Now, prophecy is truth, the statement of truth, but it does imply a tone of forcefulness in conveying it. There's a difference between foretelling the truth, that's the, the most famous version of it, and forthtelling the truth. Foretelling is looking into the future, but forthtelling uh, forth is merely telling the truth in a forceful manner in the present. As Beasley Murray says, it denotes God's purpose for the world and God's will for man, right? And that's true not just of the future, it's true of the present as well. Jesus is identified as a prophet, powerful in word and deed, on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, 19. Right? So someone who powerfully communicates the truth. The origins of prophecy were told about in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets through, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Or as the NIV Study Bible puts it, it's a communication of the mind of God imparted to a believer by the Holy Spirit. Prophecy is also important and useful. 1 Thessalonians 5.20 says, Do not treat prophecies with contempt. And there's a great passage in 1 Corinthians 14. A lot of people focus on the tongues part of uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, but it's actually focused a lot on prophecy. Let me read 14, 1 through 5. Follow the way of love, that's the love chapter of chapter 13, and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. So again, a lot of that's about tongues, but we, I think we forget that uh, Paul here is lifting up prophecy. And again, this is not just prophecy of a foretelling sort about the future, but prophecy in this foretelling sense about forcefully talking about the truth. We also know prophets are important by their uh, alter uh, egos, I guess, the false prophets. So we have a death penalty for false prophecy in Deuteronomy 13. Uh, Revelation three times toward the end, we'll talk about the false prophet. 
Jesus calls them wolves in sheep's clothing in Matthew 7:15. And so how do we discern the validity of prophecy? Well, it needs to be 100% in line with already revealed truth. And if it's predictive, it needs to be 100% predictive when those events come to pass. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, test everything against the truth and the word. And as we talked about a minute ago, 1 Corinthians 14.3 says that the three purposes of prophecy are to strengthen, to exhort, and to comfort. And so we can know whether prophecies are true in that sense. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the differences, uh, compare and contrast of apocalyptic and prophecy, and then we'll talk about the value of prophecy and apocalyptic for the believer. In the meantime, please uh, find us on Facebook, like Pure Radio, and please friend me. Love to interact with you on my Facebook. If you have questions, comments, uh, I'd love to uh, interact with you there. Reach out and friend me and like Pure Radio. We'll take a break. Be back in a minute. Pure Radio, reaching all of Kentuckiana with the pure gospel of Jesus. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in a uh, discussion of that introduces Revelation 6 and following. We're talking about literature types like apocalyptic and prophecy, uh, trying to stay out of trouble in terms of interpreting things well. A lot of people don't know what to do with Revelation or get uh, have all sorts of misinterpretations because they don't understand uh, the literature type. Uh, so the first two segments, we were talking about that. We'll continue that discussion. If you've missed this uh, first two uh segments, then you can always catch it on Facebook, SoundCloud, or Spotify under the Word Diet. Love to have you listening in through that way as well. So how do we compare apocalyptic and prophecy? Uh, They're both mysterious in their own way. Certainly apocalyptic is mysterious in terms of style. That's a point we made in the first half of today's show. Prophecy can be uh, mysterious in terms of substance, especially if it's pointing to the future. The prophet is actually an optimist, relatively speaking, because he's hoping that individuals and even the world might be reformed through the message that he's bringing. Judgment is uh, is there for discipline, uh, but the hope is that there's reform. The apocalyptic writer, in contrast, is a pessimist who calls for destruction as the only solution. In Revelation, the ideas are combined. The world was, and perhaps will be, so far gone that God had to intervene apocalyptically, certainly in first Christ's first coming, and again, later at some point, uh, in, with Christ's second coming. But for now, the prophetic emphasis is on the church's call to faithfully work with God. So it's both. It's apocalyptic. God did intervene with Christ's first coming, Uh, God will intervene again with his second coming. That's apocalyptic, but huge focus on what we're supposed to do in the meantime, and that's prophetic in nature. Ray Robbins says, this is what John is dealing with here, the apocalyptic Christ breaking into history from the outside and prophetic Christ working with the church, with his people, to bring history to its victorious end. So Revelation is both apocalyptic and prophetic. And then he says this by way of conclusion. This is the reason John never talks about its being apocalyptic after his first word. The apocalyptic has occurred. Christ has broken in, and now he is working with his people in the church. So Robbins actually goes really far here and says, look, that reference to apocalypsis, apocalyptic in verse 1, 
that we already have the apocalypse. Christ broke in. Yes, he'll break in again, but the predominant f- focus of Revelation uh, to Robbins is not apocalyptic, but prophecy. What are we doing about it? How are we being obedient given that Christ has come, given that Christ will come again? To the extent that Revelation is foretelling events, whether prophetic or apocalyptic, for us, I think it begs a question that's summed up nicely in a quote by Matthew Henry. He says, the gospel evangelists give us an account of the things that are past. Prophecy gives us an account of things to come. These future events are shown not in the clearest light in which God could have set them, but in such a light as he saw most proper and which would best answer his wise and holy purposes. Not in the clearest light in which God could have set them, but the best light, right? So it begs that question, why is this level of light the best? Why are vague prophecies, difficult to understand prophecies, why is that best? I've got a number of answers to that question. The first is we couldn't understand it. Right? Some of this just can't be put into words. We see John struggling with that. So maybe it's not put into the clearest light because we just can't, can't understand it. The second is maybe we can understand it, but we couldn't handle it. Sometimes more and clearer is more than we can handle. My pastor in Texas used to talk about if you saw all the food you were going to eat in one location uh, for your lifetime, all the food you're going to eat for your lifetime in one location at a point in time, he said it'd make you sick. It would just blow you away how much food you had eaten. What if we'd seen all the sin that we committed in a lifetime? It would just be overwhelming to us, right? So sometimes we can't handle the truth, and maybe that's the case with prophecy as well. A third point would be that it develops spiritual growth, faith, hope, etc., that it's not just handed to us. There's work, there's relationship, there's faith, Uh, There's humility and dependence that comes from this, that if it's not in a clear light, it it tends to get us to depend on God more so. Fourth, it tends to stimulate our curiosity. Matthew Henry again, he says, but they are foretold more darkly to beget in us a veneration for the scripture and to engage our attention and excite our inquiry. Uh, In the first five chapters, don't do much to excite our inquiry, except that they make clear to us that Revelation is accessible to us. Those first five chapters aren't that rough, but man, you read Revelation 6 and following, and and it's not real clear what's going on, right? And so uh, he's he's saying, look, but it does stimulate our curiosity. It does get us looking uh, into it. And then I think this point's interesting, that if he had been really clear, it might prevent the events from occurring. Matthew Henry again, had they been as clearly foretold in all their circumstances as God could have revealed them, the prediction might have prevented the accomplishment. Think about the movie, The Minority Report, right? It's kind of wrestling with the same thing, right? If the future is determined, do you really have free will? If the prophecy is uh, communicated in very clear detail, then maybe people take actions to avoid it taking place uh, at all. Okay, so we're clear on prophecy and apocalyptic. We're hopefully going to try and approach the text, understand the literary genre. But what's the value of apocalyptic? What's the value of both foretelling and forthtelling prophecy for the child of God? Well, there's two basic answers to this, and we're going to tear into both of these. The first is theology, that these will bear witness to the character of God, and especially Christ, in the, in the book of Revelation. 
Revelation 19.10, again, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What God has done, is doing, will do, what he has promised in terms of history, his character, his work in creation. All those are things we need to understand better. Theology is understanding God well. C.S. Lewis said, we're all theologians. The question is, are you a good one or a bad one? And so we hope that Revelation helps us with our theology, that apocalyptic and prophecy do things for us that other forms of literature cannot do or cannot do very well. And then second, and closely related to the first point, is that it should influence our perspective and thus our practice, right? Theology is not just in a vacuum. Theology is meant to change our perspective and ultimately our practice. Matthew six nineteen through 21, do not store for up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If we change our perspective, if our focus is on heaven and our treasures in heaven and what's been done for us, it will change our behavior. So it's absolutely essential that we develop a divine perspective. Romans 12, 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. How do you renew your mind? You renew your mind in light of the things we're talking about here. Better theology, better perspective, clearer perspective will drive the practice. I think that also tells us that a lot of times when people come to Revelation and they're most interested in specific dates and events or the details of the Antichrist, they're totally missing the point. The scriptures are never meant to emphasize such things. The scriptures are always about not the Antichrist, but Christ, right? Theology, perspective, practice. If we pick up some details in the Antichrist, if we happen to pick up a date or how an event's going to unfold, okay, great. But that, that is trivial compared to the larger perspective of theology, perspective, and practice. Whenever I teach Revelation, that's a point I make. If you come to this study or come to this hour and you're not closer to God, better able to love him and love others, then you're missing the point. The point is not uh, some kind of trivial pursuit, figure out what the number of the beast is. That is not the purpose of Revelation, right? The purpose of Revelation is to get us closer to God, a better understanding of God, to change our perspective, to change our practice. Now, within theology, a couple points to make, right? In particular, we're focusing on God's immeasurable sovereignty and power as the God of history, creation, etc., And eventually this culminates in the return of Christ and final judgment. Given his control of the past, he controls the present and the future. As we saw two weeks ago when we talked about Revelation 4, the word throne is used over and over again in Revelation. It's only 16 times in the New Testament up to Revelation. It's used 40 plus times in the book of Revelation and tons in chapter 4 when the focus is on God's character. For John's immediate audience, this was really important, right? Because they were opposing Rome, emperor worship, and persecution. And so to know that God is in control, that he's sovereign, powerful, he's the God of history, would have been especially important for them to understand. For us and them, given the certain outcome of Revelation, it provides us with hope, it strengthens our commitment to God, and leads us to greater witness and testimony, which is a recurring 
theme in the book of Revelation. Isaiah 51, 6 through 8, lift up your eyes to the heavens, look at the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants die like flies. But my salvation will last forever, my righteousness will never fail. Hear me, you who know what is right, you people who have taken my instruction to heart. Do not fear the reproach of mere mortals or be terrified by their insults, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, the worm will devour them like wool, but my righteousness will last forever forever, my salvation through all generations. Same idea, right? If you're being persecuted, keep in mind, this isn't going to last. God's in control. Don't fear them. Follow God. Love other people. Or as Peter writes, 2 Peter 3, 10 through 12, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. Again, what's the point? Since this is the way it's going to go, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. Peter is pointing to the future and God's control and using it to motivate our perspective and our practice. All right, let's take a break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry. Please spread the word about Pure Radio and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Become a P3 partner. P3 partners are Pure Radio listeners who pray for Pure Radio each day, provide financial support to our programmers, promote Pure Radio by telling others about us and sharing us on Facebook. Ready to get started? Go to pureradio.org and click on the P3 Partners button and register. P3 Partners have privileges. Get books, DVDs, CDs, devotional materials, invitation-only access to Pure Radio events, and other experience opportunities only available to P3 Partners. Pray, provide, and promote Pure Radio. Become a P3 Partner today. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In this show, we've been talking about uh, apocalyptic and prophecy in our introduction to Revelation 6 and following. And in the last segment, we were talking about the value of apocalyptic and prophecy for our theology, our perspective, and our practice. And we left off talking about the focus that we have in Revelation on God's sovereignty and power. And it's less obvious here, but there's still a focus on God's never-failing love, both in the past, present, and future. One aspect that we've already seen is God's faithful correction to the seven churches, right? It's not simply about God uh, wielding force and threatening judgment and on and on, right? It's that God does this out of love. And so there's always this connection between God's power and his love. It's the love of the cross. It's the power of the resurrection. It's a God who knows what's best and wants what's best for us and can make it happen. Both of those are there. And it's not quite as obvious in Revelation, but it, it's still there. Both of these are also connected to worship, as we saw in chapters 4 and 5. A lot of times people look at end times events or the book of Revelation, and what does it engender? Fear and despair. Well, that's not what the Bible's ever supposed to do for us. It's supposed to get us to peace and joy. Revelation's not supposed to be a headache. It's supposed to be our hope Right? And so where do we get that? We get that from understanding both God's love and his power. Right? Having our theology informed by both 
leads to a better perspective and leads to better practice. So really it's that combination of power and love, especially with respect to Christ, that Revelation brings uniquely to the table. And here the Christ of the Gospels is insufficient, right? That you have some anger in the Gospels, you have some sense of judgment, right? We have the temple scenes, we have uh, the, the, the children being kept away by the disciples, we have Christ certainly messing with the Pharisees. You can read Matthew 23 if you ever want to dispel yourself of the notion that Jesus was merely a nice guy. But judgment was not the focus of the first coming. John 3.17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So while there's some focus on judgment, uh, not, there's not much in the first coming. Or think about Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant. We'll keep reading in Isaiah 63 to 66 at the end, and you get to read about Christ as the anointed conqueror. Probably the best example of this is actually in Luke 4, 18 and 19, where Christ quotes Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 and and, um, applies it to himself. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And at that point, Jesus puts down the scroll. But if we pick up the scroll and keep reading in Isaiah 61, it's fascinating to see where Jesus stopped. Here's what Isaiah says after to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The next phrase is, and the day of vengeance of our God. Well, that's not what Jesus is doing in the first coming, right? So he puts down the scroll before he's going to mention a day of vengeance. But that day of vengeance is coming, and that day of vengeance is connected to his second coming. In Revelation, we see Christ as the lion and the lamb. We see both his judgment and his mercy. When we get to Revelation 19, there are two very different sorts of suppers that are described for two audiences. So we get to see Christ in his fullness in the book of Revelation in a way that's just not uh, there or as accessible or clear uh, in the Gospels. More broadly, this reiterates our knowledge of the two-armed character of God, both the arm of intense judgment and wrath towards sin, and the arm of mercy and grace as we depend on our relationship to him. There are a number of great Old Testament passages on the two-armed character of God. Let me give you my favorite three. Isaiah 40, verses 10 and 11. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. That's one arm. Second arm, verse 11, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lamb in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young, right? The two arms of God. Joel 3.16, the Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The The earth and the heavens will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Or maybe my favorite, Malachi 4, 1 and 2, Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left of them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. I mean, the vivid picture of Malachi 4 is just awesome, right? The burn like a furnace of verse 1, the wrath of God, and then frolic like well-fed calves. 
the sun with healing in its rays. Just awesome stuff. But that's the God we worship, right? Both intense justice and wrath, a God that's just and will make all things right, but also a God of intense gentleness, mercy, and grace. God is so patient with us. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so we make two mistakes here, right? We either blow off the justice part because it makes us uncomfortable, or we sell out on the grace and the mercy part. And really, they're flip sides of the same coin. God's justice uh, enhances his grace and mercy, right? God's grace and mercy isn't much if there's not much judgment behind it. And so we hold both of those up as 100% in full tension, both the extraordinary judgment and wrath of God and contrast it with, at the same time, the amazing grace and mercy of our loving God. And all of this leads to more fervent re- uh, worship, as per Revelation 4 and 5, and evangelism, right? You're not going to do evangelism if you don't believe in mercy and grace, and you're certainly not going to do evangelism if you don't believe in wrath and judgment. How do you worship a God who's lukewarm, who doesn't really judge much and doesn't have much mercy and grace, right? If you understand those in their fullness, or more so in their fullness, what else can happen but worship and evangelism? But beyond mere theology, right, it's supposed to take us to perspective and practice, and that's point two. David Reagan says, prophecy has often been a playground for fanatics, but it can also be green pastures for those who approach it sensibly and responsibly, seeking to know Jesus more intimately and to better understand God's will for their lives. We'll talk about this next week, but uh, you know the point of Revelation is not to try and set dates. Oropesa says this is the pro- purpose of prophecy, to point us to Christ, not to particular dates, to focus our study on the kingdom of God rather than on fleeting signs of the times. Biblical prophecy calls us to godly living, not to speculation about dates. Or as Beasley Murray puts it, prophecy never has the purpose of satisfying the curiosity of men about the future. It's given always in order to call forth repentance, faith, and obedience in living. Remember back to chapter 1, verse 3, there were blessings for those who read, hear, and obey Revelation. So don't get stuck in the details. Make sure that it's informing theology, perspective, and practice. One key part of this is moving us from a temporal to an eternal perspective, that we're living life in the light of eternity. I like what C.S. Lewis does with this when he talks about how God wants us to focus on the present and eternity, while Satan wants us to focus on the past and the future. He talks about that in Screwtape Letters. God wants us to focus on the present because that's where we are. Uh, I love Dallas Willard's line where he says, God can only bless you where you are. A lot of times we don't want to be where we are, but that's the only place God can bless us. So we, we want to be in the present, and we want to focus on eternity. Satan wants us to focus on the past and the future. Now, there's a, a place to look at the past and to plan for the future, but to emphasize that, to obsess on it. If you f- obsess on your past, you'll get stuck in your baggage. If you obsess on your future, uh, you'll never get stuff done. So, yes, think about the past and the future, but our focus is on the present and the eternity. Now, focusing on the present and eternity tends to increase our value of time and limit us to greater work. There is a tension here, though. G. Campbell Morgan says, I never begin my work in the morning without thinking that perhaps he may interrupt my work and begin his own. 
If we could live every day as though it might be the very last one before the final judgment from our death or his return, what a difference it would make here on earth. So there's a sense in which God could intervene at any moment and take us home. And are we living life in light of that possibility? On the other side, there's a line attributed to Martin Luther where he's said to have said, if Christ were coming again tomorrow, I would plant a tree today. And I like that perspective as well, though, right? Where he's saying, basically, I want to live life in such a way that every day is devoted to God. And I'm going to live it as if I've got a day or a thousand years. I want to do the right thing today, represented by, in that quote, planting a tree. In any case, keep that focus on the present and eternity, right? Not so much on the past and the future. So there's theology, there's perspective, and then finally there's practice. Probably the, the best passage or set of passages here are from Jesus' own words in Matthew 24 and 25, toward the end of his own ministry. He gives two warnings to the disciples, and that leads to four parables uh, that talk about this, right? Jesus is coming. It's unpredictable, so we need to be ready, and we should always be doing what he has asked us to do. As Shane Wood puts it, the repentance exhorted in Revelation leads to the deeds of the faithful enacted through obedience to the call of their king. Eschatology functions to call Christians to live life in the present, in light of the future, and because of the past. The goal of eschatology is not trying to crack the prophetic timetable with the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other. The goal of eschatology is the faithful witness in the present to the work of Christ in the past, which secures our future for eternity. It's even clear in the book of Revelation, if you're looking for it, a focus on repentance or not 12 times, a mention of deeds and works or failure to do those works 20 times, a call to obedience or, uh, or not 11 times. It is a, an eminent focus of the book of Revelation eschatology is like any other book of the Bible, right, or any other style in the Bible. It's still meant to call us to proper theology, proper perspective, and better practice. And so, yeah, we have these genres of of, uh, prophecy and apocalyptic, which are distracting. We don't understand them. And we can get distracted into, into looking at Scripture and missing why we're there. The purpose of Scripture is always, always, to point us to who God is, who Christ is, and then from there, what is expected for us and from us. We worship a great and good God who wants great things for us and from us, and it's driven by his work in creation and history. So don't let the literature style of Revelation distract you from that. Second Peter is probably the best place to close this. Uh, chapter 3, verse 3. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. 
The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. And then down to verse 14. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Lord, help us focus on what you want from us and for us in the book of Revelation. We don't want to be distracted. We want to understand how to read this difficult literature type. Lord, be with us as we do that and be with us every day as we strive to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Great to be with you today. Uh, The podcasts are available on Facebook, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Please interact with me on Facebook with your questions and comments. We hope you'll join us next week on The Word Diet.